Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. Hello again, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of Banal of America Audio Season 1. It is December 10th, 2005. We continue this week with Adam Go Rightly, Part 2 of 2. We discuss Kerry Thornley. 60s counterculture icon who got wrapped up in the Kennedy assassination investigation and subsequently went pretty bonkers. It's a fascinating cautionary tale for anyone on the fringes of esoterica. And we have a lively discussion on that and a host of other topics as well. Here's a little bit about Adam Go Rightly if you did not catch last week's episode. He is a self-described crackpot historian. The author of The Shadow Over Santa Susanna, Black Magic, Mind Control, and the Manson Family Mythos, and The Prankster and the Conspiracy, the story of Kerry Thornley and how he met Oswald and inspired the counterculture. He's also the author of the new book, The Beast of Adam Go Rightly, Collected Rantings, 1992-2004. to Adam has been a guest on radio talk shows across the U.S. and Canada, and his articles have appeared in numerous publications such as The Excluded Middle, UFO Magazine, Paranoia, and Steam Shovel Press. You can contact Adam at your own risk at www.adamgorightly.com. That is spelled A-D-A-M-G-O-R-I-G-H-T-L-Y.com. This interview was conducted on December 1st, 2005. Adam Go Rightly, Part 2 of 2 on Banal of America Audio, Season 1. All right, well, let's move on to the prankster and the conspiracy. This one I found pretty interesting. We're just sort of now uh, maybe like a week or two past the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. I was listening to a lot of the programs on the radio that covered it, waiting to hear about Kerry Thornley because I was reading the book at the time. So it's good that we can get a chance to talk about him today. Yeah. Um, let me do a little bio of my own on Kerry Thornley, and then you can correct me and explain, uh, you know, flesh it out for me. Okay. Um, well, Kerry Thornley... He was born in like the late 30s. He grew up, uh, where did he grow up? Uh, Whittier, California, Southern okay. California. He grew up in Southern California, and then he tried, uh, he's kind of a nerdy kid. He, he ended up, uh, tried going to college, but that didn't last too long, and then he ended up going to uh, join the um, Marines. You are correct, sir. Thank you. Yes, he joined the Marines, and uh, while in the Marines, he was in the Marines, stationed in Japan, with Lee Harvey Oswald, of all people, and actually sort of became his friend, one of Lee Harvey Oswald's few friends in the Marines. Uh, then he came back to the States in the early 60s and formed a faux religion of sorts with a couple of his friends, and that grew into something big we'll talk about as we get into this. And then, of course, uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated, uh, so the mainstream says, by Lee Harvey Oswald, and that sort of uh, made Kerry Thornley a sort of um, unique character in American history because he had known Oswald for so long and and his life sort of tied in with Oswald a lot. And then as the uh, investigations into the Kennedy assassination picked up, he became convinced that he actually was part of the conspiracy after all and uh, slowly sort of went crazy. And uh, that's the thumbnail sketch of his life. How uh, Now you can... Take the ball here and run with it. He, uh, I would say he uh, sort of went crazy for a while, but then he kind of went uncrazy towards the uh, end of his life, pretty much, from what I've gathered to, uh, from talking to the folks that uh, 
knew him towards the end of his life, he was still a bit paranoid about uh, life in general, but uh, didn't hit the extreme that it did in the uh, late 70s when he uh, really came to believe that he'd been uh, a patsy like Lee Harvey Oswald uh, involved in the uh, unwittingly in the uh, Kennedy assassination and that he had been uh, basically mind controlled and uh, you know somehow had been uh, sucked into all the uh, craziness surrounding the assassination. All right. Now, um, how did you even get interested in Carrie Thornley in the first place? Because, um, well, it, like I said, it, he's sort of a fringe character, but of course, yeah. that's how, probably how you got into him, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, when I first got involved with, uh, once again, it goes back to the uh, zine movement, the underground press. Uh, in the late 80s, I started uh, picking up, uh, got exposed to all of these underground uh, magazines and uh, Kerry Thornley was a name I uh, saw up, saw pop up uh, time and time again. All these various obscure zines floating around out there, and I really at that time wasn't quite uh, sure, you know, what to make of this uh, guy who was just writing about these uh, crazy uh, theories and also talking about the Church of Subgenius and all these other odd things with Discordian Society. So uh, anyway, the, one of those names I kept seeing and it was kind of registered back there. And then uh, later on in the uh, early 90s, a, a book came out called, uh, I believe it was titled The 60 Greatest Conspiracy Theories. Uh, might not have the title exact, but it was written by Vankin and Whalen. And um, one of the chapters in there was about uh, Carrie Thornley and uh, basically how uh, Thornley, you know, once again claimed he had been unwittingly sucked into the Kennedy assassination and how he was a uh, kind of uh, guinea pig to some type of mind control that uh, Oswald was also involved with, and that ultimately he was a uh, Nazi breeding experiment, and that his uh, family, his mom and dad, were involved with with this whole thing. And there's uh, anyway a pretty pretty uh, strange uh, and interesting story. Um, afterwards, I heard uh, Vankin, Jonathan Vankin, who had uh, written that piece, was. Uh, kicking around the idea of writing a book about Terry Thornley, and I thought, man, okay, I'll be ready to buy that yeah, yeah. whenever it hits the shelf. But that uh, never happened. Uh, over the years, I had started to correspond with uh, Thornley and, you know, learned more and more about him and uh, started uh, taking some notes, and, you know, I got to the point where once I had enough background material, I decided to go ahead and uh, write the book. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So, all right, let me start here with the first sort of question I had, and that was on the Discordian Society. Um, now, he formed that with a friend of his. Um, obviously, he probably never thought it would get as big as it did. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> sort of, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the Discordian Society was and then how it sort of evolved into, like, a, into what it is, like, sort yeah. of now, I guess, you know? It, it basically came out of um, some philosophical discussions that uh, Kerry Thornley had with his friend Greg Hill back in a bowling alley in uh, Yorba Linda, California in the uh, late 50s. And uh, somewhere along the line, they uh, decided to hatch or create, or uh, it was revealed to them that uh, <laughs> this new re this religion uh, called, uh, based on the worship of the Greek uh, goddess of the Scord, Ares, uh, and they uh, named their uh, society or this religion the Discordian Society, based on the worship of the, uh, the goddess Ares. And basically it was a uh, put on of all organized religion, kind of a, just a spoof. These two young lads, and they were in their uh, late teens at that point, uh, these two lads came up with this. And so that, that's where it was in the late 50s. Uh, uh, you know, he talked about uh, after high school, uh, Kerry went into the uh, Marines, met Oswald, uh, started writing a book about uh, Oswald prior to the Kennedy assassination, which is a curiosity. Anyway, during this time, they kind of continued writing funny letters back and forth to themselves about uh, the Discordian Society, and other people started uh, getting involved with it. Uh, they uh, eventually uh, came up with the Bible of Discordian called the uh, Principia Discordia, which was, uh, by and large, uh, Greg Hill's baby, even though uh, Thornley contributed to it and other people started contributing to it. Uh, the the first run was like five copies, but uh, over the years uh, they started uh, putting out more, got out there, and it uh, got picked up by people in the uh, counterculture. And it was kind of a, uh, a art experiment, say, or a kind of group experiment that other people got involved with. So each edition of the Principia Discordia evolved and became something bigger with different people getting involved. Later on, Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea and folks like this picked up on it and got involved with it. And so uh, by the late 60s, early 70s, it uh, became a you know pretty much a uh, phenomenon within the counterculture and uh, with the release of... Uh, Wilson and Shea's the Illuminatus trilogy. Uh, they gave a nod to head, nod of their heads to uh, Greg Hill and Kerry Thornley, and actually, uh, the uh, first uh, book in the Illuminatus series was dedicated to them. Uh, during this whole period, you know, various editions of the Prince Principi Discordia. It was totally underground. It, it was never picked up by a ma major publisher until years and years later. Yeah. And so uh, that in a nutshell uh, kind of talks about uh, the uh, history of the uh, Discordian Society, but 
besides you know people being involved in uh, working on the Principia Discordia, they're also involved with a number of uh, different pranks. Oh, okay, yeah. And you know, basically just uh, screwing with. Uh, the establishment. Yeah, so, like so that, that was another uh, function of the uh, Discordian society. So to like basically bring about the collapse of <laughs> society through humorous means. And of course, uh, you know, what better religion to engineer that than one that's uh, dedicated and worships the uh, goddess of chaos and discord. Exactly. So it sort of started like an in-joke and then grew into like, um, sort of like, um, like a bigger in-joke amongst a lot of people yeah. in the counterculture. It, uh, and it basically, or it, uh, eventually, got out of hand at uh, one point, at least uh, in Kerry Thornley's eyes, that he'd unleashed, helped unleash something that got out of his control and brought too much chaos into his life, as he was quoted as saying one time, if he knew uh, it was going to bring all this weirdness into his life. He would have uh, picked Venus instead. Yeah, I remember that quote from the book, yeah. Now, what was the, uh, I found this kind of fascinating, the significance of the number 23 in um, in the Discordian religion. Mm-hmm. Um, speak to that a little bit, because that was really uh, interesting. It was odd. <laughs> well, they kind of picked up on that from uh, William Burroughs. Yeah. The author who looked into the uh, 23 Enigma and uh, just found a lot of weird occurrences uh, surrounding the uh, number one having to do with a uh, Flight 23 or a Shipwreck 23 where the number 23 kept popping up. And so there's some weird paranormal, whatever, uh, synchronistic things going on with the uh, number 23. And so this got picked up on by the Discordian uh, Society, and uh, I think it's a common thing. People who've started looking in at the number 23 start investigating this. In their own life, they start seeing the number 23 show up anywhere, and it, you know, perhaps it's just a form of... Uh, programming ourselves to look for uh, something uh, in particular, and all of a sudden we start seeing it popping up uh, all over the place. I remember uh, I lent a friend of mine, uh, Robert Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger, uh, a few years ago, where he talks about the 23 Enigma in that book, and all of a sudden my friend started seeing it popping up everywhere, and it kind of wigged him out, and he gave me the book uh, back half-finished. Oh, man. (laughs) Now, how did this Discordia, how did it, like, spread around? Like, were they all just hanging out in California at the time? No, they were were across the uh, country, and, uh, I mean, uh, Bob Wilson was, he was in uh, Chicago, and... uh, you know, you had different people in New Orleans, and uh, it was just, uh, they met by however uh, means, uh, I mean, a, a lot of the, a lot of the Discordian members never actually uh, met each other. The only contact they had were these letters or uh, 
different. Uh, a, a lot of times, for instance, uh, Greg Hill would come up with some kind of funny collage, and he'd send it to the next person on the, the list. They'd get it. They'd add something to it, add it to the next person on the list. And a lot of the folks involved in the escorting society on this mailing list, uh, they didn't use their real name. You know, Carrie Thornley was uh, a lot of things. Uh, the Bull Goose of Limbo, uh, Omer Kayyem Ravenhurst, uh, Gray Kill was Malaclips the Younger. Uh, you had uh, different handles folks were using. So some of these people never really knew who they were uh, talking to or who they were involved with, which made it all the more curiouser and <clears throat> more fun. I was gonna say you kind of touched on something that uh, that I had thought when I was when I read the book too. I was like, is that sort of um, uh, now like a contributor to your use of the name Go Rightly? Is that like um, is that sort of an homage in, in some ways? Uh, actually, um, during the course of uh, working on the book, I met with uh, you know a lot of the original members of the Scordian Society and the core group, they all knew each other. It was uh, Bob Wilson and Kerry Thornley and Greg Hill once again and Bob Newport and uh, Louise Lacey, these folks who were, you know, not only involved in the Scorting Society, but were really involved in the uh, counterculture uh, movement. And, uh, you know, at one time or another, uh, they adopted the Scordian names. And, uh, you know, that was the whole thing behind the Discordian Society. Uh, when are you ready to become a pope? And the answer is when you say you are. And so uh, during the course of talking to these folks, we came across a lot of the original material and some of the old pope cards, which I started distributing over the years. And so uh, Eventually, Go Rightly wasn't a Discordian name, but I came up with my own Discordian handle, which is the Wrong Reverend Houdini Kundalini of the Church of Unwavering Indifference. <laughs> and uh, Luis Lacey, uh, who is known as uh, Lady Il Fab in the Discordian Society, uh, really uh, enjoyed that name. She, uh, Luis's uh, handle, Lady Il Fab, uh, uh, interestingly enough and uh, humorously enough, came from uh, an encounter she had with Black Panther Eldridge Cleaver in the late 60s. Uh, huh. She worked on uh, counterculture magazine Ramparts, okay. and uh, she was an editor there, and uh, Cleaver was involved uh, with the magazine, Base and really she was uh, pretty good friends with... Uh, Cleaver and uh, worked with him on some of the stuff he was involved with for Ramparts, but uh, Louise is a very uh, strong-willed and uh, forceful person. She she won't uh, she'll tell you where it's at. And uh, I guess one time, <laughs> and she's also an anarchist. And at one point, I guess she got Cleaver riled up, and he. Uh, called her a uh, fucking anarchist bitch. <laughs> and so that's how she got her <laughs> FAB handle, Lady L. Fab. <laughs> that's a great story. <laughs> it was sort of like you'd spread it around to the different people around the country and send a letter to the, the you know, all the people sort of add their own sort of stuff into it. 
Yeah, they they have what they called a uh, what they call that something Jake Day, where they'd uh, Greg Hill orchestrated a lot of this stuff. He'd send out a letter to the list saying, on this date, send some funny, crazy, pointless, weird something to this person here who maybe is a magazine editor for some conservative uh, publication. They they did that with, uh, for instance, the John Birch Society. And part, you know, one of the things that the Scordian Society did was resurrect the uh, Bavarian Illuminati, I believe, from all the research I've done. They started talking about the Illuminati once again, that they were the conspiracy of all conspiracy and they were behind everything. And during that period, the John Birch Society uh, was getting into these uh, stories about the uh, Bavarian Illuminati. So, uh, you know, Thornley and Wilson, all these guys started sending letters claiming to be part of the Illuminati, you know, to the John Birch Society <laughs> magazine just to screw with them all the more. The more. So, that, you know, that, 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 this was some of the projects they were involved with. And I talk about it in the uh, book, uh, Carrie Thornley in Cahoots with uh, Robert Anton Wilson, who was uh, an editor at Playboy, and it was actually edited the Playboy uh, Forum. They um, planted a letter and an answer in uh, one of the editions basically uh, creating this uh, mythology about the uh, Illuminati that they were had behind all the major political assassinations. And so uh, it's it's created this whole mythology and you're not sure <laughs> how much they actually were involved with this, how much they're really uh, truth there is behind all these legends of the uh, Bavarian Illuminati, but these are the type of projects they're involved with, basically to uh, create myths and to expand people's consciousness. So you think can we compare it to sort of like um, groups that form up on the internet now uh, with how they correspond, they might not ever meet each other, but... Oh, ex exactly, yeah. That, uh, what they were doing, you know, the internet was the next obvious uh, evolution or next step, sort of, sort of stuff they are involved with, you know, uh, yeah. with all the different paranormal or whatever kind of news groups you want to get involved with, uh, you know, back then when the, they were involved with it, you know, you had quite a time lapse sending letters across the country, everything's very immediate these yeah. days. Yeah. But yeah, they they are definitely a precursor to what has come after them. And um how prevalent do you think was the drug use um amongst this group of people when they were creating and sort of passing along the uh the Discordia movement when they were moving oh. along? Was it was it as prevalent as one would suspect or was it was that sort of like an overblown myth of the sixties? Well it, it was it was different, uh Back then, when you talk about uh, drug use, uh, I think everybody who was involved in the counterculture during that uh, period experimented with uh, LSD and other things, you know. But I, it, 
their involvement, I don't think, was rampant. They did as much experimentation with pot or whatever as anybody else did. It definitely influenced, you know, <laughs> what what they, what they did. But uh, you know, it, it kind of came with the uh, territory back then. It was all part of the experience. Yeah. How mainstream was uh, Thornley in the '60s? Um before he became famous for being associated with Oswald, was he just sort of like, was he mean, was he a big name in the counterculture movement? Uh, he wasn't a big name, but um, he, he probably should have been eventually. He was, he was involved, uh, for instance, uh, with the libertarian movement. Um, he, he was really a pivotal player in the, uh, early 60s, uh, you know, he, he examined a lot of different uh, political philosophies and things and ideologies and uh, got involved with the uh, libertarian movement, which was pretty uh, conservative in the early 60s. And he got involved with the uh, counterculture and kind of one of the first persons who got involved in combining anarchy and libertarianism. So he was basically trying to pull together people from the left end of the political uh, spectrum to to the and you know bringing in the people from the right, the more conservatives, and uh, basically trying to bring these political spectrums together. Which I think he was. Uh, ahead of his time and he used to have great parties where he, you know when he was living in Watts at his house he'd uh, you know just bring in a colorful uh, cast of uh, characters hippies and conservatives and try to uh, just getting some open discussions going so he was involved with that I think he was ahead of, ahead of his time there he helped organize some of the uh, human beings you know, which yeah. were big, big events, you know, the first big psychedelic uh, dancing in the street events that happened. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, he was never uh, known nationally as like an Abby Hoffman or a Jerry yeah. Rubin or one of those uh, guys. But, he, you know, he was definitely uh, known, known of in the underground uh, you know, never became a uh, uh, household name by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, yeah, uh, this is kind of asking you. Um, now, so he was in the military, and he he's in there with Oswald, and they were like pretty good friends. As good of friends as uh, you know, Oswald had. They couldn't have carry uh, stated that you know they weren't close friends, but. Uh, there was a bit of an affinity between them. Uh, Oswald was uh, at that time studying Marxism, and so was uh, Thornley. So they had various uh, and many uh, lengthy conversations about politics and religions and this t these type of things. So uh, you know, if the Thornley Oswald relationship was probably the uh, closest one that uh, Oswald had during that period when he was in the Marines. Yeah, and it sounds like um, at least, the, well, like you said, he was writing a book about Oswald before the Kennedy assassination, so he saw something in Oswald that he could sink his teeth into. Yeah, uh, 
originally, uh, Carrie was working on the uh, book, uh, which uh, is called The Idle Warriors. Uh, he had, uh, it was basically a composite character made up of Carrie and Oswald and a few other uh, Marines he knew during that uh, period. Uh, after uh, Oswald defected to Russia, when Thornley heard about that, he went, oh, wow. You know, that, that's pretty wild. Uh, from that point forward, uh, the character of uh, Johnny Shelbourne, who was based entirely on Oswald. And so, you know, this is quite a curiosity that he was writing this book, uh, you know, based primarily on Oswald, a good uh, three years before the assassination. Yeah, that is pretty strange. And, uh, I'm sure it added fuel to the fire of conspiracy theorists. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, Jim Garrison, uh, you know, the movie uh, Oliver Stone's uh, JFK is based on Jim Garrison's investigation. Garrison was a DA in New Orleans. Uh, he believed, you know, that Thornley was uh, part of the uh, group of conspirators involved in the Kennedy assassination, and particularly uh, Thornley was one of the uh, people who basically set up Oswald to be portrayed as a commie sympathizer and a uh, lone nut assassin. And, you know, Garrison felt that his book, The Idle Warriors, was basically uh, used to uh, present uh, Oswald in that light. And that's how the Oswald character pretty much is, is, uh, is portrayed in the book, right? That he's sort of a, a dissident? Yeah, right. Yeah, in, in The Idle Warriors. And uh, then later, uh, Thornley uh, also ended up writing one of the uh, first books on the uh, Kennedy assassination uh, called, aptly enough, Oswald, where once again he uh, presented somebody who, uh, you know, was interested in Marxism and uh, leftist uh, politics. And, you know, once again, Garrison thought that uh, basically this was a design and that uh, Thornley had been uh, used to write this book once again to betray Oswald in this light. And, like, from what well, the best you can understand, what, uh, was Thornley, was that the case, or do you think Thornley was just, that, that he was just like a, a writer and, and, and <laughs> thought it would be a, an interesting book? I think he was just a writer and he was trying to make a name for himself and uh, saw a golden opportunity there with Oswald. Yeah. yeah. Now, What's... there's the distinct possibility that he was being used and, you know, possibly even to write these books, but if that was the case, it was, uh, it was being used unwittingly, not to his knowledge. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's the area I get into in the uh, prankster and the uh, conspiracy uh, about a group of shadowy characters that uh, Thornley met in uh, New Orleans prior to the uh, Kennedy assassination, who he believed had sucked him into... Uh, this group of uh, conspirators that were uh, involved in the assassination. Yeah, that's actually, that's right where I was going to go next. The, okay. uh, the character of brother-in-law. Yeah. And, and some of those conversations that Thornley had with, um, I forget the name of the other guy, but uh, brother-in-law and um, his... Slim Brooks. 
Yes. Um, Lynn, is it Lynn Brooks? Slim Brooks. Oh, Slim Brooks, yeah. Um, like the conversations about how they'd kill Kennedy and, and things like that. I mean, Thornley, he, he's back from Japan, and uh, he ends up in New Orleans at the same time Oswald is. So he's pretty much seems to be right in the thick of, of what's going on uh, prior to the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, that, that's the whole weird thing about it, too, is that uh, Oswald in, was in New Orleans you know, during the same period. Thornley was, you know, in 60 and uh, 61, and uh, according to uh, Thornley, they never uh, met each other while they were there. Um, the two individuals he uh, met, brother-in-law and uh, Slim Brooks, as you indicated, they had uh, a lot of different uh, conversations, and uh, one of those was a uh, theoretical uh, conversation on how to uh, assassinate a president, and in particularly uh, John F. Kennedy. And, you know, at the time, Thornley considered these conversations, you know, to be nothing more than uh, basically uh, morbid theorizing. Yeah. <laughs> Something fun to do. Uh, Thornley was a rabid uh, anti-Kennedy, uh, he hated Kennedy's politics, and, uh, you know, some people would ask, you know, why, why would somebody be having these conversations with somebody, and why was Thornley messed up or involved with all these shadowy uh, characters? Um, Thornley uh, commented that he was getting to know all these curious individuals, brother-in-law and Slim Brooks, because uh, they were involved with... Uh, or at least they claimed to be involved with the New Orleans, New Orleans underworlds, and that they had different, they had connections with uh, government intelligence agencies and these type of stuff. And Thornley was uh, basically seeking out these colorful characters because uh, he planned to write a book on uh, the New Orleans underworld during that period. And so, um, not long afterwards. Uh, Kennedy gets assassinated, and uh, all these uh, strange and curious conversations that Thornley had, uh, he didn't think much of at the uh, time. Uh, then uh, I guess we should fast forward to the uh, late 60s, 67, 68, and uh, you know, during this time, Kerry was back in uh, California getting uh, immersed in the counterculture movement, psychedelics, uh, was involved in a uh, mate-swapping uh, group and all of these type things when he ends up getting indicted by Jim Garrison, who's claiming that uh, Thornley uh, was involved with the CIA and the Kennedy assassination. Now, let me just backtrack for a second here with you. Um, after the assassination, how mainstream did... Did, did, like, did the story of Thornley uh, being in the Marines with Oswald, did that come out and people were like, what's that all about? Or was that sort of like just a, he knew about it and maybe only a handful of people Well, knew. you know, it, it was known, but uh, it wasn't something that the national media really uh, covered. Uh, Kerry uh, did testify before the uh, Warren Commission during that uh, yeah. time and... Uh, basically just recounted his experiences with uh, Oswald. So, yeah, he did uh, kind of make the national stage on that, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
the uh, Warren Commission basically just tried to uh, put that baby to rest as soon as possible. And, uh, you know, Kerry tried to capitalize with his book, Oswald, but uh, I, don't, I don't think they really ever published that many uh, copies to begin with. And if you can find one now, it's just a slim paperback uh, volume, but they go for 50 to $100. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did he, now, uh, after it happened, uh, he wasn't into the conspiracy aspect of it much. His attitude was more like, wow, uh, that guy I knew in the mid-range, he flipped out and shot the president. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was more his attitude. Yeah, and, um, uh, you know, it wasn't until the Garrison investigation uh, started when, began when Kerry started re-examining a lot of this stuff. Uh, uh, you know, Kerry uh, initially thought that uh, Garrison was off his rocker and that he was being... Uh, persecuted. Uh, you know, Garrison claimed a number of things. Once again, I Kerry was part of this apparatus in New Orleans that were affiliated with the uh, CIA and the intelligence community that engineered uh, the assassination and that Kerry was one of the infamous Oswald doubles, uh, impersonators running around Texas and New Orleans prior to the assassination, uh, impersonating Oswald later to uh, set him up as, as a uh, patsy in the crime. Yeah. And so um, eventually uh, the key suspect in uh, Garrison's probe, uh, Clay Shaw, played by I think Tommy Lee Jones in the movie, yep, yep. He, he was uh, cleared of all charges. That was around 1970 or so. And, shortly after the uh, charges were dropped against uh, Kerry Thornley. Uh, and fast forward uh, about two or three years after that, Thornley uh, picked up a copy of the Yipster Times, which was a Yippie uh, magazine put out during that uh, period. And he saw a story in there that uh, dealt with uh, three tramps that were picked up in Daly Plaza following the uh, assassination. And the, uh, basically the gist of the article was that these three tramps uh, were actually uh, intelligence, intelligent agents in disguise who uh, were involved in the Kennedy assassination. And uh, the author of this article, A.J. Weberman, claimed that uh, one of the individuals in question, uh, who was known as the old man tramp, tramp was in actuality... Uh, CIA agent E. Howard Hunt, notorious uh, agent who was also involved in the Watergate break-ins. Mm -hmm. uh, when Kerry saw this uh, photo, he uh, immediately, uh, actually there's a couple photos, and the one was E. Howard Hunt uh, and uh, the tramp and comparing the two. When yeah. Kerry saw these photos, he immediately recognized E. Howard Hunt as being the uh, shadowy character he had met in New Orleans way back when, uh, known as a brother-in-law. And at, at that point, uh, Curry uh, began to suspect that he had been uh, you know, sucked into this whole Kennedy assassination uh, craziness. And as the uh, years progressed, he continued to evolve his... Uh, Theories and uh, you know eventually he believed he was uh, put, 
mind controlled and all these other things yeah. and uh, basically used as a patsy like Oswald. Now during, no, uh, it was interesting that you noted that during the uh, garrison investigation, the underground, uh, they were sort of on Garrison's side. Yeah, a lot, a lot of uh, his former uh, associates, people he involved with in the underground, uh, uh, you know, uh, first of all, Garrison was their knight in shining armor. Yeah. He, he was coming to bust the uh, CIA and whoever for bringing down, you know, the hope of a generation, uh, Kennedy. And so when uh, you know, Kerry started, uh, he got indicted by Garrison, was being, he felt unjustly persecuted. Uh, you know, he, he basically became an enemy of uh, Garrison, who was, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the person that uh, all the uh, the underground and the counterculture was promoting. So yeah. Kerry immediately found himself with at odds with all the, uh, you know, all the people he was associated with before. Yeah, yeah. So that that kind of uh, led and. You know, to a certain amount of alienation, which eventually, you know, one could attribute to Kerry's uh, growing uh, paranoia and his uh, eventual, uh, you know, mental breakdown. Now, did he expect to be in indicted in this garrison thing, or was that like a total surprise to him at the time? Uh, he said it was a total surprise. Oh, really? Yeah. And then after the fact, after he had adopted the conspiracy theory as opposed to what he thought originally did he ever go back to garrison and try and um like give him any more information maybe that he had held off before well yeah that was the thing he tried to set up uh, a few meetings with garrison so they could actually uh, sit down and talk to it but garrison never agreed to meet him uh, face to face so he met with garrison underlings and they uh you know the whole the whole uh, gist of the case uh, was uh, a lady named Barbara Reed claimed to have uh, claims that she saw both uh, Oswald and Thornley together in New Orleans, and uh, and so when uh, Thornley would meet with Garrison's uh, people, and he you know he'd tell them, no, I never met with Oswald, and they're going, you know, you knew Oswald and the Marines, you wrote this book about him, you're living in New Orleans. The same time he is, this has to meet, you know, be the most fantastic uh, coincidence ever, or uh, you're lying. Yeah. And you know, they just assumed he was lying, or you know, that that was Garrison's assumption. He was basing a lot of his case on that. So you know, they never wanted to hear Thornley out about it. How come you think he never met with, uh, how come you think Garrison never met with Thornley? Was he just too busy, you think, or, or, or what? <laughs> Hard to say. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Well, uh, Thornley, you noticed, like, like how he changed from, um, anti-conspiracy theory to, uh, to pro-conspiracy theory, but also earlier in throughout his life, as you detail in the book, he seems to change ideologies, like, on a whim, mm -hmm. and then zealously dive into these ideologies. Yeah. Um, speak to that a little bit, because I thought that was kind of like, um, I wouldn't say strange, but I thought it was, just, yeah, a little odd. I was like, I was like, that's kind of, you know, one day, you know, he picks up an Ayn Rand book, and next thing you know, he's an ardent capitalist. And, yeah. You know, so what, what do you what, think that was all about? 
Well, have you ever picked up an Ayn Rand book? No. Oh, well, Yachty will turn into an ardent capitalist. <laughs> well, I, I picked up uh, Atlas Shrugged, but it was really big. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't have the time, but I've heard really good things about that. And that's actually, I think, the, the book that Thornley read that turned him into a ardent capitalist. Well, I, th I think it was just a uh, evolution that was going on with uh, Thornley, and he was always open to new ideas, and he, he's one of those guys that uh, you know, got a certain idea or ideology or something would capture his imagination, and he would run with it for a while, then, you know, something uh, new would turn up. Not, you know, I, I'm kind of similar in that uh, respect when you, you get into looking at conspiracy theories and all those, these yeah. different things that there's a period of time when you're going, wow, you know, there's something to this, and, you know, it's just uh, where, where you buy into it. Yeah. But then eventually you get to the point where, hey, I really don't know anything for sure in this world and uh, move on to the next thing. I think that Thornley was, you know, just uh, had that adventurous nature and was an experimenter, and so, you know, his... He was uh, continually evolving, as we all are, really. You know? yeah. So I, I, I don't really think that was uh, odd. Uh, Curie was definitely zealous and passionate about things, so when he would dive into a theory, he would definitely write it out and take it to the hilt. Yeah, yeah. After he embraced this uh, conspiracy idea behind the JFK assassination, obviously, that uh, most people believe in now, mm -hmm. Um. He, he really plunged headlong into it, and then he started accusing his, his uh, other Discordians of being his handlers and things. Um, he, he really went off the deep end, so to speak, for uh, once he could, yeah. got into that conspiracy aspect. And, uh, you know, you could attribute that to a few things. Uh, the more conspiracy-minded among us will say that... Uh, he went off the deep end because he was a uh, victim of uh, mind control or whatever, or maybe he did too much acid, or, uh, you know, I think uh, it might have been a uh, number of things. Part of the alienation he felt and the persecution from the uh, garrison investigation, and I also document a uh, long affair he had over uh, many years that kind of came to an end at the same time as uh, the whole garrison uh, investigation was uh, ramping up. So you know, there's many things you could contribute to his uh, eventual uh, breakdown. Yeah, but he, he did uh, at one point really became, become an ex uh, extreme paranoid and uh, suspected uh, members of the Discordian Society uh, as uh, kind of being involved. He uh, felt that uh, Robert Anton Wilson, of all people, was his uh, CIA handler at uh, one point, and that the Discordian Society had, uh, was basically a front for the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just, yeah, that just makes me laugh. Now, when... Uh, well, he, that... he, 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 he was in, you know... Uh, it, it sounds I mean, t totally ludicrous, but at one point, uh, Curie uh, 
bought into that, and he was in pretty uh, bad shape. He uh, eventually worked his way out of that uh, funk, and I think had a pretty good life until he uh, you know, died in the late late nineties. Yeah. Now, when he was at his most paranoid, do you think the other uh, Discordian members? This, like, what, when? What about in? When was this? When do you think he reached his uh, his nadir of of paranoia? It was around uh, 76, 77, 78. I was able to lay my hands on a lot of the uh, letters he wrote. I was fortunate enough to get a hold of Greg Hill's archives and Louise Lacey. You know, they all saved all these letters Stanley uh, wrote. And it, you know, they're just the uh, classic case of, uh, you know, uh, full-blown paranoia exhibiting itself on, you know, on the written written page. Now, do you think that a lot of his old buddies from that time period, from the 60s, um, from the early days of the Discordians, and, and at that point it had been like over 10 years, do you think they had sort of grown up and moved on and, and started families and stuff like that, and he, and he was... Um, it was they, they, they moved on, and they were doing different things, and Kerry kind of got stuck in that whole uh, paranoid uh, conspiracy theory and, uh, surrounding the Kennedy assassination, and he, he didn't evolve for a number of years, and so, but, you, you know, those, there was a pretty close bonding with uh, some of those uh, folks, uh, Greg Hill and Bob Newport and Louise Lacey, where they kind of looked o watched over Curie in those years and took care of him and kind of... Uh, nodded their heads and <laughs> tried to be patient with him when he was going off the deep end. Yeah, oh, that's cool. It's nice that they, uh... So he, I had he, had, he had a support group there that uh, helped him through. All right, because I had the fear that maybe they had sort of, like, just turned their back on him at that point because he was getting worse and worse, but it sounds like <laughs> they were pretty cool to him. Yeah. Now, towards the end of the book, you say that, um, well, it seems the, that the idea that maybe he was schizophrenic comes up um, what do you think that that, that was that? Do you think that was just people trying to place a label on him, maybe trying to figure out what made him um, so over-the-top paranoid, or do you think there was maybe some schizophrenia going on there? Uh, um, Bob Newport, uh, I've mentioned a couple times here, he was one of the original members of the uh, Discordian Society, and he was also a uh, clinical uh, psychologist. And uh, he diagnosed Carrie as a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, but, you know, it's pr pretty easy to pigeonhole uh, people. And uh, to quote uh, Charles Manson, uh, paranoia is a higher form of awareness. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think, you know, Thornley might have been one of those people tuned into some higher frequencies, you know, yeah. that oftentimes geniuses are uh, the people who go crazy, uh, perhaps uh, don't don't have the tools or don't learn to ways, teach themselves ways to uh, filter out too much of the noise so they can, you know, go on living day to day. Yeah. Now, Make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Do you think he was? So you're saying? Um, but uh, I. But you, don't, you, know. you don't think he was like uh, sick or anything like that? That um, not like not like 
uh, physically sick or anything like that, but um, sort of like did he had an ailment that they could that if he had gotten some kind of treatment during well, the, those days, I, I, maybe he I would think, have been a little better off. I think uh, he uh, eventually did get uh, treatment. I mean, I've heard different things from different people, but. Bob Newport's of the impression that eventually he did go on medication in his later years, and that really helped him out. Yeah, because during this time, it's important to know that he was uh, he was sort of a vagabond, would you say? When, uh, oh, yeah. He, he was living in storm drains and hitchhiking across the country, and, you know, when he hit his lowest, he was uh, doing what he could to survive, eating out of garbage cans and <laughs> Yes. This type of thing, which, you know, is pretty sad for a brilliant person like he was, but, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, uh, life is a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> now, when you were writing the book or researching the book, did you ever meet Thornley? Uh, I never did, unfortunately. Uh, I did correspond with him and talk to him on the phone, but we never met face-to-face, uh, -face, unfortunately. And what was the... What was the I mean, when, when, by the time I started writing the book, he'd been... he was dead. I, when I had conversations with him, correspondence, that was in the early 90s before I really had any intention of writing the books. When I got involved, you know, with the underground zine movement, uh, you know, during a period of time, I was writing a lot of uh, quote-unquote wacky people, you know, just <laughs> networking with strange people, more out of amusement than anything, and Thornley was one of those people I made contact with. And, and uh, what, what was that correspondence like? like how do you look back on, on his life? <laughs> I think uh, what I did was just send him some uh, different articles. I think I sent him an article I'd written in Paranoia magazine kind of that claimed or uh, entertained the theory that uh, uh, psychedelics had been introduced into the counterculture basically to undermine it, you know, by the CIA or whoever. And, you know, send stuff like that to Thornley just to get his feedback. I remember that particular piece he kind of called bullshit on, but in, in a... Uh, nice and diplomatic way so you know those, those were the kind of exchanges we were having yeah nothing nothing uh that was you know directly talking about his life or anything so like i said once again i at that time i had no intention of writing a book about him so it's more like trying to get perspective from someone who was like on the scene when things were going down Mm-hmm. yeah well that's an important you know you want to get that kind of perspective and so, and you met a lot of these people who were in the Discordian Society um, after the fact, of course, one of them when you were writing the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Really, uh, a lot of uh, cool and interesting uh, people got to go spend some time with uh, Robert Anton Wilson, and uh, actually, Greg uh, Bishop accompanied me on that assignment. Uh, that uh, Wilson and Bob Newport uh, showed up uh, for that interview, and. Uh, uh, that's one of the highlights of my life, meeting uh, somebody like uh, Bob Wilson. That that guy is a big hero of mine. Well, why don't you speak to that a little bit, where it was like meeting him and uh, you just pick his brain for a while and stuff. Is it cool? Oh, yeah. It, it's, you know, he's just uh, the ultimate uh, gentleman. Uh, invited us in, uh, poured us a uh, shot of scotch, and... Uh, 
eventually got down to business, had some uh, pizza with him, and <laughs> stepped out on the porch and had a couple smokes. And, uh, uh, you know, his, his intellect is uh, staggering. And so I, I felt a bit overwhelmed, you know, what the hell is this guy <laughs> talking to us for? But, he, you know, he's a very down-to-earth guy, uh, too, and, you know, made everybody at ease, even though, you know, he's at the point of his life where he's having uh, kind of some medical uh, problems post-polio, so he doesn't get around that well anymore. But, oh, that sucks. Yeah, great, great guy. One of the thrills of my life. Nice, nice. Um, now, what about uh, Thornley's son? Did he read the book? Did you talk to him when you were writing the book at all? Have you heard any feedback about, uh, or or uh, also uh, Thornley's ex-wife? Have either of those two um, had anything to say about the book? I was in contact with uh, Kara Thornley, his ex-wife, and uh, his son, uh, Craig, but they never did want to be interviewed. Uh, I think... Uh, Craig was real wary of the whole uh, thing, how a book on his uh, dad was going to be handled. And also, Greg's an uh, artist in his own right, a filmmaker. So I think, in a certain uh, respect, he's lived under the uh, shadow of his father and his father's craziness. So yeah. he never wanted to get involved. Kara uh, Thornley, I also pursued for quite some time. and. I think there's a lot of old wounds there. She never consented to be being interviewed, although, you know, both of them put me into contacts with other folks. I had uh, a lot of lengthy interviews with uh, Carrie's brother, Dick Thornley, which were uh, quite helpful. Nice. So, you, you know, you do, the, you do the best you can, but it gets to the point where, you know, these, these people don't want to talk about this, so it's time to move on. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to harass them or anything. No. Now, you obviously, throughout this, you must have done a lot of research on the JFK assassination, or you've probably done a lot of research on Well, it. I had done a lot uh, previously, uh, uh, back in the uh, early 80s or so. I, I remember uh, one incident in particular. I was going to a local JC, and this is... Uh, uh, I think the late 70s, early 80s, uh, sometime around there, and I saw a uh, poster hung up there at the college saying, the CIA killed JFK. I go, what in the hell is that about? I'd never <laughs> been exposed to that before, so anyway, that got me looking into the Kennedy assassination, picked up one book and another, and it after a while, it kind of spiraled out of control, but it became an obsession. So, you know, I did a lot of reading research over the years, and by the time I got around to writing the Thornley book, you know, that, that background helped out. Yeah, yeah. And so you sound like you're a pretty well-read uh, researcher. What, in, uh, in a nutshell, what do you think um, the Kennedy assassination was all about? I mean, you, you've probably delved into a lot of research that – that um, especially with this like Hoffman style stuff and the revelation of method and maybe the mind control and the ritual well, aspect, where where do you fall in the JFK assassination lore? What I found interesting was uh, when I found out the Beatles were in Dealey Plaza on the same day of the assassination. Really? And uh, what I believe is that uh, the four Beatles used a uh, triangulation of gunfire to <laughs> shoot down JFK. <laughs> 
Actually, that was a theory uh, put forward by uh, Cliff Clavin on Cheers. Oh, okay. Uh, Were they really in Ely Plaza or no? <laughs> no. Uh, I hope not. That would be even more bizarre <laughs> than I could wrap my head around. Um, you see, you're asking me <laughs> what I think... Uh, what yeah, well, I mean, everybody has their own sort of... Uh, anyone who's looked into the JFK assassination probably has their own um, perspective. I think, I think it was point. engineered at a very high-level elements of, uh, you know, uh, the government were involved, also involved in the uh, cover-up afterwards. Yeah. Um, for a lot of uh, reasons, I think, you know, even though JFK got us heavily involved in uh, Vietnam, he also put out an executive order shortly before his death, getting ready to pull all the advisors, as they called them, out of Vietnam and extricate ourselves from that whole mess. And, uh, you know, uh, war is big business. And I think uh, you know, the military industrial complex had such an interest in there that they couldn't. Uh, they couldn't let that happen. No. So they, you know, took him down. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be pretty much the uh, consensus point of view. What about the whole ritual aspect to the JFK assassination? A lot of people don't. A lot of people poo-poo that, or, or <laughs> sort of uh, think that's obfuscation. I've heard people say that. So, I mean, do you pretty much treat yeah. it as the ritual aspect, or you well, think just looking at finding things when you're looking for it? Uh, yes. Um, you know, but I, like I was saying before, entertain various. Uh, conspiracy theories and you know there could be something to that I, once again it's hard for me to buy in a hundred percent to any one theory but you know I don't uh, disbelieve or poo-poo things either yeah. necessarily uh, who knows yeah, it, yeah. it certainly made <laughs> entertaining reading uh, that's for sure yeah well it's interesting <laughs> I always find that sort of aspect of the JFK assassination pretty interesting you can't you can't really um you can't uh, really totally prove it or anything, so it's hard to, you know what I mean? You gotta, you gotta file it away and be like, huh, you know, that's that's another interesting log for the fire here. Yeah. <laughs> now you dedicate the book to um, Jim Keith and and Ron Bonds. Ron Bonds yeah. is a publisher uh -huh. uh, who published the Carrie Thorny books and I, I think some of the Jim Keith books, right? Oh yeah, he was the uh, major publisher for. Uh... Jim Keith uh, at uh, Illuminate Press. And were you friends with Jim Keith at all? Did you know him? Were you uh, corresponding yeah. with him during the time? I, I corresponded with him uh, quite a bit over the years. We used to uh, bounce things off of each other, and uh, yeah, I, I felt he was a uh, colleague, compadre. We never uh, met, and we always had plans to uh, meet at some point. Uh, never did, unfortunately. Um, uh, interestingly enough, uh, like you're saying, uh, Ron Bonds at Illuminate was, uh, you know, Keith's major publisher uh, before Keith died. He'd actually uh, basically became a partner with uh, Ron Bonds and was doing a lot more work with uh, Illuminate Press. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. And so they were uh, they were working closely together uh, get the timeline here uh, correct. Keith died before Ron Bonds did. Uh, Jim Keith uh, 
went to a Burning Man festival, which I've been to a couple times, and I'm trying to remember the year. Uh, it's around, I want to say, 97 or 98, and it fell off the stage there. Uh, hurt his knee. Went in the next morning for some routine uh, medical operation and ended up dying. Uh, and so a lot of people have, uh, conspiracy researchers have, uh, you know, raised some curious eyebrows about that. Yeah. Uh, not long after, Ron Bonds ended up uh, dying from uh, food poisoning, which, uh, you know, also people like uh, Ken Thomas at Steam Shovel Press thought was once again uh, you know, pretty damn curious. Yeah, well, uh, how old did you know Ron Bonds? Once again, he was uh, somebody I uh, corresponded with on occasion. I pitched him some uh, book ideas, you know, and we exchanged information. Uh, uh, he had a uh, bunch of Curie Thornley uh, materials that I was going to trying to acquire from him before he died that I uh, never did get a handle on. I'm not sure what they uh, were. So, you know, he was one of the many people I'd uh, talked to. Like, uh, you know, I said I corresponded to Thornley and yeah, yeah. Jim Keyes and Ron Bonds and the, that whole network uh, out there of uh, people involved in the uh, conspiracy uh, scene that kind of had a similar sensibility about it, you know. Yeah. I, the, Jim Keith and I, I feel we were kind of uh, kindred spirits in a sense, the way we approach, uh, you know, subject matter. Now, how did you take his death? Well, you must have been pretty heartbroken when you heard he died. Oh, it was just uh, one of those things. Here we go again, you know. <laughs> yeah. Now, were you, are you, uh, um, I guess now it's been like maybe eight years or something like that since he died. Do you... Do you, what do you think of the, the idea that maybe he, it was a conspiracy to kill him and, and, and or Ron Bonds? Is there much to that, do you think? Or is that just is that the sort of thing where when someone in the conspiracy field dies, that, that you know, it's almost automatically going to be blamed on, on their work? Well, um, you know, there's no uh, particular smoking gun. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it seemed pretty damn curious to me, you know, especially... <laughs> Once again, we talked about uh, Bonds was uh, the sole, you know, the main publisher of Jim Keith. They both worked uh, closely to, uh, together on different projects. Uh, Keith had just become a partner with uh, Ron Bonds, you know, at the, the time of his uh, death. They put out some pretty uh, controversial materi material through oh, yeah. Illuminate Press, like the book uh, The Octopus. Oh, yeah, that's a great book. And uh, that's, you know, uh, I worry about my friend uh, Ken Thomas was the uh, co-author of that book with uh, Jim Keith. Yeah. Uh, Ken's really uh, somebody who's talked about uh, their deaths and looked into it more than I have. Yeah. But he, he thinks there was probably something uh, sinister behind it all. No, yeah, you, are you, uh, so you... you your pretty much colleagues then with Ken Thomas too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's uh, he's he's wrote he's written a lot of great books and he's a pretty big name in the conspiracy research field. What uh, he's America's most beloved conspiracy theorist. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he pre uh, prefers to be called a uh, 
para parapolitical researcher. I like that a lot better. I might have to adopt yeah. that as well. <laughs> and his motto is uh, all conspiracy, no theory. Oh, that's even better. I like that. <laughs> so, do you, so how you, you, would you consider him like a friend of yours? You guys are or colleagues, correspondents, and stuff like that. Yeah, we, we've uh, met before. Uh, once again, he's uh, involved with a network of uh, you know, the uh, Great Bishop and Rob Sterling at Conformist.com. You know, we we've met up a few times. Uh, I'm forgetting that. Few of the uh, folks, but uh, we have these uh, conspiracy conclaves now and then. Nice, I hear you going. Yeah. Uh, now, do you think? Uh, now, obviously, Ken Thomas, he must be worried because these two dudes uh, just up and went, uh, died. I, I don't know if he is. I think he's of the uh, sentiment that hey, you can't look back over your uh, shoulder. He has a passion and love for what he's doing, so... Yeah, that's cool. You know, you're <laughs> uh, either going to do what uh, you felt you were put here to do or yeah. don't do it and be unhappy and might as well be dead anyway. Yeah, you can't back down <laughs> anyway when, uh, you know, even if it, even if something like that happened to them, even if they were offed, you can't really, yeah. you know, when, then if you stop, then that's what, you know, part of the reason probably why they did it. Yeah, and you you lose if uh, they're able to scare you or spook you out of doing what you want to do, then they, quote-unquote, they have won. Now, in that in that sort of like um, network of people where uh, where people, where there's always these sort of mysterious deaths, and uh, you seem like you're more well-connected with the uh, that, that community than I am, do you think there is sort of like a, an undercurrent, I wouldn't say a fear, but of, you know, Hey, live now, because you never know. You might write the thing that that gets you killed. No, you know your next project could be the one that that uh, you know seals your fate. Type of attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's back there in the background. I don't know if any of us dwell upon that, but you know, it's a possibility, especially uh, after the deaths of uh, Keith and Barnes. And you know, the book The Octopus was based on Danny Casolero, who you know, uh, uh, allegedly or suicided, but uh, I think we all know better. Yeah. Now, did you know him at all? No. Ah. Um, okay, and then that pretty much wraps it up for uh, the Kerry Thomas book. I only had one other question for you mm-hmm. outside of all of this was um, I didn't really see too much other than the George Bush article in The Beast of. I didn't see too much discussion on 9-11, so... As a conspiracy theory, uh, para parapolitical <laughs> researcher, I, I prefer to be called a crackpot historian. Okay, here we go. <laughs> As a crackpot historian, um, you know you were in this field way before 9/11, and um, 9/11 happened. That's sort of like, I think it really just was a huge, major event, obviously mm-hmm. in the lives of everybody in the world, oh, yeah. and um, and especially for conspiracy theorists because you know. I mean, this, that, that probably was the biggest event since the JFK assassination, and we know what the JFK assassination is mm-hmm. has spurned as far as conspiracy theory go. What do you think about uh, 9/11, and and what, you know, what were your thoughts when it happened, and, and in retrospect now, like four or five years later, what do you think? Well, when it happened, I was, uh, you know, it was a mind blower, obviously, like it was to everybody else. Yeah, it was one of those events, like. Uh, Oh, 
the JFK assassination or when John Lennon was killed, you remember exactly, you know, where you were at when you heard about it, what you were doing, one of those type things. So, you know, it's a life-changing uh, experience. Um, you know, as far as the particulars uh, behind it, I haven't really investigated it uh, too closely. I mean, there's a lot of other people involved in that. But, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it, uh, we talked about uh, the revelation of the method or a strategy of tension being created, and, uh, you know, that, that was obviously a prime opportunity if it was orchestrated uh, by a conspiracy. You know, it, it definitely helped achieve... Uh, the design of uh, you know a new world order, call it what you want, is yeah. of uh, basically uh, stripping us of uh, certain rights and helping us get closer to a police state. You know, and the same thing that happened with the Kennedy assassination. So, uh, without talking about the uh, particulars or you know be behind. 9-11, you can look behind that and you know, see the same earmarks or design behind a lot of things like the Oklahoma City bombing and all these other events that uh, happened. You know, there's the distinct possibility that there was a, uh, a design behind it. It wasn't uh, necessarily something that was uh, uh, created by, uh, you know, Fundamentalists. Fundamentalist terrorists. Now, do you think we're heading towards a new world order, or is it sort of a, is it sort of like a a, um, a a mood in society that that sort of is a permanent feeling that, like you said, it was they were saying that back in in the sixties uh, and seventies, and now yeah. they're sort of saying it now. Do you think that they've always been saying it, and they'll be saying it like twenty years yeah. from now, and we still be relatively free? Uh, in 20 years, maybe, uh, you know, you definitely, if you travel around the world, you see the globalization going on. Yeah. I was in uh, China a few months ago, and, you know, it's like going to a uh, major city out here in the West somewhere. You have all the Gucci ads and all this type of stuff. And yeah. There's this uh, global commercialization that I think is all part of this, call it what you want, uh, one world design to basically, uh, you know, strip us of uh, our culture and, you know, all that's really important to us all, you know, what's at the core of civilization and homogenize it into this, uh, you know, basically commercialized society. Yeah, you know, do their shopping at uh, strip malls and Walmart World. And <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sadly enough. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> hey, you got to uh, create your own world, you know. Yeah, pretty much. You got to, you got to, you know, you got to go your own way, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, uh, what future projects can we look forward to hearing from you on? What, are, what, what are we going to see? We, we talked about uh, James Shelby Downard, whose influence on uh, Michael Anthony Hoffman. Yeah, you touched on it a little bit, yeah. So, yeah, a piece about uh, 
the stuff they've done. I mean, uh, I get into uh, Michael Hoffman as well in this piece, and awesome. uh, William Grimstead, who's part of this group, is talking about this whole uh, mythology, perhaps, or whatever they've created in their uh, works, you know, dealing with all these themes on uh, the revelation of the method. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, it's either going to be a uh, long article or a short book. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and there's other things in, uh, kind of on the uh, back burner. I'm thinking of writing a, uh, another article uh, kind of exclusively on this whole Tuesday Will Illuminati uh, high weirdness. Yeah. <laughs> and, nice. Uh, yeah, there's always something. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so that'll, that'll just be coming out sometime around whenever. I'll let you know. I'll put put you on my mailing list. How's that sound? Sounds good. Nice. And I'll you spread the word. don't mind being spammed? What's that? If you don't mind being spammed? I'm used to it now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tell the people uh, your website and the books um, that they can get there, and uh, give them the whole spiel here. Give them the rundown. Yeah, the, the easiest way to go to get the uh, books is through adamgorightly.com, and you know there's links there to uh, Amazon or whoever to get them. You also get signed uh, copies if you want to go that route. It doesn't cost you any more, uh, and. Uh, I have the uh, four books on the uh, website. One is the Manson book, The Shadow Over Santa Susana, Black Magic Mind Control, and the Manson Family Mythos. I had all these long titles in the uh, Carrie Thornley book, The Prankster and the Conspiracy, the story of Carrie Thornley and how he uh, met Oswald and inspired the counterculture. Uh, third book, it's a chat book. It's uh, available also through uh, wingtv.net. They're the publisher. It's called Adam Go Rightly on Death Cults. And lastly, uh, The Beast of Adam Go Rightly, Collected Rantings, 1992 through 2004. Those are all available on the uh, Adam Go Rightly uh, .com website. I also have a second website devoted exclusively to the Manson book, which is MansonMythos.com. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, definitely uh, check out the books, everybody. Um, I really enjoyed them. Uh, the two I read so far, I'm going to be picking up the other one soon, and uh, I'm sure I'm going to like those a lot, too, because I just really dug into the uh, the Beast of and the Prankster and the Conspiracy. Those are both great. And I highly recommend the books. And um, thank you very much, Adam Go Rightly, for stopping into Banal of America Audio. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the interview, and I'm, I'm sure the people who listen are going to really dig in and enjoy the, uh, the conversation we had. Yeah, thank you. That does it for this week's edition of Banal of America Audio. I want to thank Adam Go Rightly for sitting down and talking to us. I want to thank Leslie and Chiron of BanalofAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series. And, of course, I want to thank all you great listeners out there in the Internet world. Hope you're enjoying the audio series. Stay tuned for more madness from banalofamerica.com. You can find more stuff from us at www.binnallofamerica.com. Next week, it is to be announced. You have no idea. I am taping two monstrously huge interviews 24 hours from now. I will announce who will be the first of those two guests to be featured uh, sometime next week at banalofamerica.com. 
And, of course, next Saturday, be here for the first of those two interviews. I can't tell you who they are yet. I don't like to announce any names until the interviews are in the can, so you're not disappointed if someone bails at the last minute. But I will simply say that these two gentlemen I will be speaking to tomorrow in two separate interviews are both giants in the field of ufology, so I think you're going to freak out when you see who is on tap for the rest of December at Banal of America Audio Season 1. So, while you think of that, enjoy the rest of your week. You'll be hearing from me next Saturday. This is Tim Banal, signing off.